I truly believe the cliche that all farmers are essentially environmentalists in that we have a great deal of connection and concern and care about our, our land and the resources that we rely on to make productive use of it. We can't store water here. We're not trying to use more water. We're not trying to, you know, we're trying to just continue going about business as we have making productive use of our land for the last 150 years. Protecting farmland and producing the food we need mean getting better at using water. In California, the days of abundant fresh water are long gone. Today, every drop counts. Because when too much water disappears into thin air, so do farmers' livelihoods. I'm Jay Familietti. On this episode of What About Water, we're looking at evapotranspiration, water leaving the soil, water leaving plants, literally vaporizing back into the air. And we're looking at the way new technology measures that water loss so farmers can grow more from less. Farmers like Brett Baker. I'm a sixth generation parrot farmer from the Sacramento San Joaquin River Delta, smack dab in the middle of California. Uh, my family settled that piece of dirt in the 1850s and we've been making productive use of it, growing crops, mainly pears, for the last 150 years. And my father still manages and operates that orchard today. We have 30 farmed acres, which makes us one of the smallest, if not the smallest pear grower in the state of California. Having a, a close connection to that land and just growing and realizing how deep our roots as a family ran in that dirt was kind of what always was my, my guiding light in my decision making. I started out as a business major and I, changed to wildlife, fish, and conservation biology, much to the chagrin of my father. I remember coming home and telling him, and his response was, oh my God, you're going to be a tree hugger. And I said, don't worry, Dad, I'll always be a pear tree hugger. At some point in time, I decided that I was going to pursue a law degree. So when I went to law school, people would ask me, why, why are you here? You know, and I would say, well, I want to be a farmer. Why, what are you doing here? And, well, obviously, they were far from the state of California. The Delta in general is, is poorly understood, I think, and poorly described to a lot of people because it, it is so unique and it is so different from the rest of the state. When I'm traveling, whether it be South America or Europe or wherever you are, and they ask you where you're from, and you say California, and they nod their head. You know, they know where California is, sure. And then you tell them you live on an island in the middle of California. They look at you cross-eyed, you know. They're like, what, you mean like you're surrounded by water on all four sides? I'm like, oh yeah. The ever-present threat of flood is something that every resident of the Delta concerns themselves with. I've seen the river height crest 
about the same height as our levee. Like I could stand on top of the levee and spit in the water. And that's a pretty humbling event to see high flows like that. Those levees don't just protect the people living behind them. They do protect the water supply system for the state of California that provides water to 25 million people. Now, all 25 million of those people don't get all of their water out of the Delta. It's a bit of a misnomer. But our levee system did a lot of things. It helped control the wild uh, evaporation of the water. This was a swamp and overflowed land uh, at, at one point. And so there was a great deal of uncontrolled evaporative losses. The evaporative transpiration, the measurement of consumptive use, is really the relevant measure for water use in the Delta. It's necessary to know because the state operates the two largest diversions in the Delta, the state and federal government do. They determine how much water they're going to extract or export out of the Delta based on a poor calculation of consumptive use. An admittedly inaccurate model, an admittedly inaccurate algorithm. They know it to be inaccurate. There's always a reason to pay attention to your water use as a farmer. It's quite possibly one of the most critical management tools you have, but measuring water, generally speaking, is, is an art more than it is a science. That's Brett Baker, a pear farmer in California. My next guest says if farmers like him can find the right tools, they can see how much water soaks into their crops, and they won't have to guess how much of their water evaporates. A.J. Purdy is a senior research scientist at California State University, Monterey Bay, and he's been studying this for years. Welcome to What About Water, A.J. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. I need to let our listeners know that you were actually one of my star graduate students. So it's no surprise that you're trying to solve the problem that farmers around the world wrestle with. You could have studied anything. What drew you to this? Yeah, no, I was really uh, fortunate to be part of your team down at UC Irvine. Uh, did my PhD. You, you have to say that. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it, so, you know, it's like I, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in San Jose, but I went to college in San Diego. And so you think those two areas are pretty far removed from a lot of agriculture in California. But to get between the two places, you drive straight down the center of the Central Valley on I-5. And it was really over those years that I started to see and conceptualize and really more so understand the footprint that agriculture has in the state. And it's not necessarily just, you know, in terms of water, but also the prominence in terms of industry as well. During my master's degree, I was fortunate to, to link up with a team at Cal State Monterey Bay, where I happen to be now as well as a, as a research scientist. But it was really during that time that, you know, I was able to work and install sensors to measure water cycling on farm fields. And, you know, it was through those experiences that I really understood the power of science as that objective means to, to reach out and work with farmers to better understand, you know, how much water they're using, where are those, those blind spots in terms of, you know, getting useful information. And then also coming away from that experience, understanding that there's still quite a big gap between the science type data that we gather and collect and the information that's useful 
to make actionable decisions. Then fortunately along the way, I was able to join your lab and learn the, the prominence of evapotranspiration, not just on a farm field, but in the earth system as well and in global water cycling. It's amazing, AJ, that, you know, California has that huge impact on you. If you're environmentally aware, you know, like you are, and you do start taking that drive up and down the five or the 99 in the Central Valley, and you see the massive expanse of the agriculture, and you also see that there's like no rivers in sight, like you realize, okay, this is a place that doesn't have a lot of water. But I want to get back to, you know, because you mentioned evapotranspiration, we mentioned it a couple of times. Can you explain what exactly is evapotranspiration? Besides being a mouthful of a word, evapotranspiration, it's that flux of water from the land surface to the atmosphere. And so it's the combination of evaporation from, you know, ponded water on the surface, evaporation from soil, and then transpiration through plants as well. Lead. Okay, and so going through going through the roots, right, and out through the leaves, and exactly, and you know, it's like one of the interesting things about evapotranspiration as well is that we can use satellites to observe this in an independent way, and we can get at the actual amount of evapotranspiration. The amount of energy that it takes to convert water from liquid to vapor is quite a bit, and so when you think of the surface energy balance, just like you would think of, you know, a water balance, there are inputs and there are outputs. For the energy balance, we have inputs from the sun. Some of that energy goes to heat the ground surface. Some of it heats the air. And then the rest of that energy goes towards converting water from liquid to vapor in the process of evapotranspiration. Mm. Okay. So then it sounds to me like if there's more water on the ground, then there more of that incoming energy from the sun would be used to evaporate the water, to vaporize the water than it would be to heat the ground or to heat the air. Correct. Yeah. No, that's as simple as that. Thank you. So how does remote sensing of evapotranspiration actually work? Like, what are we measuring? Yeah. You know, satellites are designed to, to capture certain wavelengths of energy, whether it's reflected energy from the Earth or emitted energy from the Earth as well. And so certain wavelengths, they, they kind of indicate whether or not plants are, you know, green and healthy. And then other wavelengths may, may better represent which areas are cooler, which areas are hotter. And so using that combined information, we can start to model which areas are having higher rates of evapotranspiration, which areas are having lower rates. Yeah. So as an aside, like, what would we have to do if we wanted to measure it directly? How could we do that? Uh, just throw a garbage bag out there and capture somewhere? Like, what would we do? If you go back in hydrology textbooks, there are a few ways in which you can, you know, measure it directly. One of the more straightforward ways is to weigh it. And so people have invested money and, you know, put these weighing lysimeters in the ground. And so you can think of it as like a scale beneath the surface where you have a container above it. So long as you measure how much water you're pouring in, you can measure, you know, that decrease in weight as water evaporates. <laughs> Some of the other ways are using these things called eddy covariance towers. And it, it's through those towers that you're actually measuring more of that, that turbulent energy exchange. And so there's these really fine-tuned, they're called sonic anemometers that measure the three-dimensional direction of wind. And so... In, in conjunction with measuring how much water vapors in the air, you can actually capture and measure how much water is evapotranspiring from the area in which the wind is coming. 
So it's really those two two ways that help us build confidence in the satellite-based approaches and, and ground those to to what we're actually seeing on the on Earth. It's really hard for a farmer to know how much water is being lost in a, in a field. So now we have technology that can help us quantify evapotranspiration. What does a farmer do with that? Because is that really going to help the farmer on the ground? Like, what does that do for a farmer? Scientifically speaking, you know, it's it's useful for us to close the water budget, the water balance for a basin. But for a farmer, farmers can see which areas of their fields are producing at optimal rates or suboptimal rates. So are we at the point yet where a farmer or, you know, people like us could do this and share it with farmers, do a water budget or a water balance, like the sums of the inflows and the outflows, and so where the rainfall or irrigation would be an input, evapotranspiration would be an output, right, a loss. Are we at the point where we can do that and sort of do this, like, budget so that farmers know how much water basically is in the root zone of a field, so they know how much water they need to add or, or don't need to add. We we are. Some of the more recent efforts, I know that you've been able to talk to some of the team at OpenET um, in terms of making this data available, summarizing it at the field scales, and integrating that precipitation information, not just the total amount of precipitation, but it's really that effective precipitation, how much of that water sticks around, so that you can get at how much water you actually need to apply. Summarizing that information is, is really critical to the utility of ET models to support water consumptive use estimates. So back at the farm level, what can someone like Brett do to control and, and manage water loss? The evapotranspiration data that's available, you know, it gets at that consumptive use. And so what that means is it's like ET is water that, you know, goes into the atmosphere and leaves the system when you're making irrigation choices, you can irrigate so that you're kind of replacing that deficit. That way, you're optimally applying the exact amount of water you need to, to support crops. Um, one of the areas in which this type of irrigation management is beneficial, not just in terms of the quantity of water, it's actually really beneficial for the quality of water as well. You're not flushing as many, you know, fertilizers down into the groundwater, or you're not flushing them into the nearby streams. And so, from that standpoint, it's not just trying to fine tune how much water you're applying to support healthy crops, but it's also, you know, preserving resources. You're not over pumping groundwater if you're applying the exact amount that you need. It's a really a way to hopefully optimize, you know, how we're managing water quantity and quality, not just for one farm field, but the, the system that it's within. So do you see promise for like technology helping us have super smart farms and being really, really efficient and at the same time, you know, stewards of the environment? Yeah, I think we're headed in that direction, right? It's not just, you know, through satellite-based methods. There's a lot of effort in the agricultural technology community industry as well you know when you think of it, the amount of water in a canopy if you have more perennial crops like you know say like orchards or vineyards you can actually install sensors like on a select number of trees or vines to track how much water potential exists within those those canopies themselves so it's through i think a combination of satellite observations or maybe drone observations in the mm -hmm. future 
to get at the the spatial variability of what's going on within your farm boundary. But the reality is that technology on the farm hasn't necessarily caught up with all of those gizmos. One of the things, like going back to the utility of ET data, you know, how much water is leaving your farm, you can tell a farmer, hey, it transpired five millimeters yesterday per unit area across your farm. But at the end of the day, what matters is how long you're turning on and off your irrigation system. And so making those translations really at the end of the day, it's the efficiency of irrigation and, you know, that time dimension that's that's going to make make this data even more widely, I guess, adopted or used. You know, from my experience, I think we are, but I agree with you. It's a long way to go and it's very expensive. So it's one thing for us to, you know, hang out in our, you know, computer labs and in our in our research offices and think about all the great things that, that we can do and that can be done. And it's another for them to be implemented on the farm. And, you know, I'm just kind of reflecting while you're talking, AJ, about like how important this hydrologic variable is evapotranspiration, right? Absolutely critical for food production and for, you know, supplying moisture for precipitation. It's a big part of the water budget. But, you know, most people give it zero thought. What's what's that all about? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think, you know, it's like the the one thing I'll kind of circle back to is that, you know, I think there's a growing appreciation for this type of work. Yeah. And I think you're seeing that through the openness of a lot of farming partners to work with teams to allow us to, you know, measure ET in a in a field and use that to help inform and update and optimize the the models that we use to measure those fluxes with satellites. Hopefully in the future it's even even more openness and appreciation, but you know. Well, let's follow up on that that openness and getting the data out there. I know you talk a lot about open science. So what does that mean? Open science is increasing the transparency. It's allowing for reproducibility. It's making it more accessible, forming like an inclusive community. And all of those things are really needed, not just for science to advance at a more accelerated rate, but I think it's also highly relevant for applications of science as well. That transparency, so you know your partners understand exactly what you're doing. The reproducibility so that you're not just applying it for one farm field, you can apply it to many. The accessibility, it's like publishing in open access journals, being able to lower the barriers towards scientific data use. Like when I started the PhD program at Irvine in 2012, getting satellite-based data was, was a pain in the butt. And it, you know, it still is, for frankly, for a lot of data that's out there. But what we've seen over the past 10 years is like a huge leap in terms of making the data much more accessible. And that includes, you know, anything from not having to download it on your computer and, you know, install software for a model. Now you can go to a website and click on a field boundary and get that data in real time. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I think that's pretty amazing. So are you feeling optimistic? You feeling hopeful about technology, not only remote sensing, but the things that we're seeing become more available with open science? Absolutely. The arrow is pointing in the right direction, for sure. I, I think a lot of the more recent efforts, not just you know through the ET community and efforts like OpenET, but Google Earth Engines really lowered the barriers and made it 
possible to do science on really large scales. I think even NASA's recognized the, the value in open science and put together an initiative. And you're seeing that through things like the Earth Information System in which, you know, you're, you're modeling things, but it's really the accessibility of going to a website again, kind of being able to interact with these really sophisticated models in a much simpler way. Love your enthusiasm, AJ, and your perspective on this. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. AJ Purdy is a senior research scientist at California State University, Monterey Bay. To effectively manage water, the data for evapotranspiration has to be easily accessible. That's where OpenET comes in. To find out what that will look like, I spoke with Robin Grimm. She's the interim director of OpenET, and she's the director for the Environmental Defense Fund's water program. The intent is that it helps a huge variety of water management solutions and innovations that are otherwise really difficult to implement at scale. You know, we also have a use case where folks are taking this data in to a water accounting platform, right? So there's folks who are trying to do that at the district scale, the local scale, and this makes that possible. It's also possible for policymakers to understand and track supplies in near real time at sort of larger watershed scale applications. We've called it filling one of the largest data gaps in water management. Um, and indeed, I did think it has been. I even think that this data can be useful in helping to fill in pictures about groundwater recharge, for example, um, in some areas where that information isn't as, as well understood. OpenET is an online data platform that makes evapotranspiration data available across the western 17 states at the field scale. So you can go online to OpenET and you can type an address in the search bar or you can zoom in using the zoom to any place in the western U.S. Um, and understand with visuals and downloadable data what evapotranspiration has looked like in that particular place for the last five years. Farmers and water managers, right, across the West and, and other arid regions of the globe, really, are dealing with this incredibly challenging situation in which they are being asked to do more and more with less and less in terms of the water supply. Some farmers in California are seeing up to 100% cuts in their surface water allocations during the severe parts of the drought. And so um, one of the things that's really surprising then is that they're being asked to so precisely and so carefully manage this scarce and ever scarcer resource without really having a broadly accessible way to understand how much water is actually being consumed by crops and natural vegetation as it grows across the landscape, which is one of the most critical pieces of information for managing water. And so OpenET came about because that gap was there and it was really critical to fill it. That's Robin Grimm. I caught up with her earlier this fall during World Water Week in Stockholm. She's worked with NASA, the Desert Research Institute, Google, and other groups to build OpenET. This open source platform is something Brett Baker is using. We're thrilled with this concept of OpenET because we think, number one, it's relevant data. Number two, it's uniform. Number three, it's, it's near real time because when we were Reporting prior, we were reporting water under the bridge. We were doing last year's stuff. This is going to be informative to 
the current water year. The timeliness, I think, is is probably one of the most advantageous things, you know, going for open ET is that within six weeks they can turn around your the imagery and give you a a consumptive use figure. So that's for us, that is promising for our water users because it helps us comply with the regulations. I'm hopeful that it will allow the operators and the decision makers that operate the reservoirs and the state projects and the pumps in the Delta to, to make more informed decisions and have better outcomes. And we're hopeful that Delta water quality will be maintained to an extent that it is more beneficial for the environment and for our agricultural users. That was Brett Baker, a sixth-generation California pear farmer. As you heard, Baker is eager to collaborate with OpenET. If you've been listening to the episode and you have questions about something you hear on the show, send them to ideas at whataboutwater.org. We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, the homeland of the First Nations and Métis people. What About Water is a collaboration between the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. This podcast is a production of Cascade Communications. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht. Our producer is Aaron Stevens. Our fact checker is Tasha Garby. Our GIWS crew is Mark Ferguson, Sean Ahmed, Fred Rebin, Andrea Rowe, and Jesse Widow. I'm Jay Famoyetti. Thanks for listening.